Welcome to the Hidden History Podcast with me, Paul Christian. This podcast will feature new revelations in Viking DNA, Battle of Hastings Tomb Revealed, Atlantis Hidden History, Haunted Pub Legends and the death of Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. The largest ever study of Viking DNA has yielded some interesting and surprising results. The paper, called Population Genomics of the Viking World by S.G. Willislev and colleagues, features in the journal Nature and reveals that not all Viking DNA is from Scandinavia. Before I go into specifics, the central finding appears to be that Vikings absorbed as much DNA or more than they left behind, but the science of Viking genetics is complicated. My own DNA shows 9% from Scandinavia, but on the basis of the same test this has fluctuated and shown different modern-day countries as the origin for my Nordic DNA. My family is from the area around Stamford in Lincolnshire, which was one of the five boroughs of the Danelaw, territory in England ceded to the Norsemen by the Anglo-Saxons, so the presence of Scandinavian DNA is not surprising. But the complicated thing, and potentially why my own sample keeps changing, is that the DNA of the Anglo-Saxons and the Danes or Vikings is virtually identical, because they originated from the same place and were simply different waves of invasion and conquest of what is now England. However, the findings of the new study muddy the waters even further and show not only the genetic imprint of the Norse, but their cultural legacy also. The paper's abstract read, The maritime expansion of Scandinavian populations during the Viking Age, about AD 750 to 1050, was a far-flung transformation in world history. Here we sequence the genomes of 442 humans from archaeological sites across Europe and Greenland to understand the global influence of this expansion. We find the Viking period involved gene flow into Scandinavia from the south and east. We observe genetic structure within Scandinavia, with diversity hotspots in the south and restricted gene flow within Scandinavia. We find evidence for a major influx of Danish ancestry into England, a Swedish influx into, into the Baltic, and Norwegian influx into Ireland, Iceland and Greenland. Additionally, we see substantial ancestry from elsewhere in Europe entering Scandinavia during the Viking Age. Our ancient DNA analysis also revealed that a Viking expedition included close family members. The new study also reveals that generally Vikings were a lot more genetically diverse than the peasant societies on the Scandinavian mainland. The Vikings lived in coastal areas and, genetically speaking, they were an entirely different people to the peasant societies living further inland, said co-author Ashot Margarian. Also, commenting on the culture the Vikings exported, Eske Willislev said, In Scotland there's a grave which in archaeological terms would be classified as a Viking grave. Its swords and symbols reflect the Viking culture. However, genetically speaking, the man in the grave has nothing in common with the Vikings. He is an example of how the Viking culture was embraced in certain places. The article also noted, within the British Isles it's difficult to assess how much of the Danish-like ancestry is due to pre-existing Anglo-Saxon ancestry, but the Viking Age contribution does not exceed 6% in England. The genetic effects are stronger in the other direction. So, who conquered who? It is well known that the Vikings assimilated and intermarried with locals when they settled. The Normans are a prime example of that but the findings of this research highlight just how much interchange there was between the Vikings and the peoples of the areas they raided. Welcome to Waltham Abbey in Essex, home to perhaps the most inauspicious royal burial in England. That is, of course, if you discount Richard III, who was found buried under a car park in Leicester, 
an indignity that has thankfully now been put right with a fantastic tomb in Leicester Cathedral. And while that was the tomb of the final Plantagenet King of England, this visit is to the alleged final resting place of the last Anglo-Saxon monarch, Harold Godwinson. The tomb itself is marked with a very small stone which just reads Harold King of England Obit 1066. In front of this small obelisk there is a flatter stone which reads this stone marks the position of the high altar behind which King Harold is said to have been buried and uh, movingly there are still flowers on top of the grave. King Harold was said to have prayed at Waltham Abbey en route from Stamford Bridge to the Battle of Hastings where he met his end. Godwinson allegedly promised the throne to William the Bastard of Normandy, later to become William the Conqueror, in a scene portrayed in the Bayeux Tapestry. The early propaganda piece shows William seated on the left and Harold slightly prostrating himself to William on the right. The tapestry also shows Harold's death at the Battle of Hastings, being shot in the eye with an arrow. William's ascent to the throne of England ended six centuries of Anglo-Saxon rule and the Norman conquest was brutal and led to huge changes in England, although much of the Anglo-Saxon identity remained. The integration of the Normans, Saxons, residual Danes and Celts forged a new English identity which persists to this day. And while King Harold's grave might not be the most auspicious of plots, he is well known in the local area and a King Harold Day is convened every year in Waltham Abbey. So what connects this lock and nearby housing estate in England with the mythical lost city of Atlantis? Well, the connection is British proto-archaeologist Arthur Evans. Evans's father made his money through marriage into a paper milling business that was based here in Nash Mills Wharf, Hemel Hempstead in Hertfordshire. And the cash made from the business helped to finance Arthur's trip to Crete in the 1890s. There he discovered, and some say haphazardly partially reconstructed, the city of Knossos of the Minoan civilization, which was hitherto considered to be a myth. Evans initially thought he'd discovered the mythical labyrinth of the Minotaur, a half-man, half-bull monster that was fed Greek heroes as part of the tribute the Hellenic world was indebted to pay King Minos and his Crete-based empire. After ascending the throne of the island, Minos competed with his brothers as ruler. He prayed to the sea god Poseidon to send him a snow-white bull as a sign of the god's favour. Minos was to sacrifice the bull to honour Poseidon, but owing to the bull's beauty, he decided instead to keep him. Minos believed that Poseidon would accept a substitute sacrifice. To punish Minos's deception, Poseidon made his wife Pasiphae fall in love with the bull. And according to legend, the sexual union between Pasiphae and the bull begat the Minotaur. Later theorists have speculated that the Minoan civilization was the basis for the philosopher Plato's lost city of Atlantis, as the technologically advanced society was destroyed in a cataclysmic manner, which bore similarities to the fabled end of Atlantis. So, to close the circle, this unassuming site in southern England could have led to the discovery of Atlantis. One of the apartment blocks bears Evans's name, however his birth and presence here and the significance of the site is very much hidden history. 
Whether or not the Minoan civilization and Knossos was actually Atlantis, at the very least the profitable industrial processes of paper milling absolutely allowed for the rediscovery of one of the ancient world's greatest civilizations. So just a quick video about a very spooky Halloween visit to a pub which claims to be the oldest in England. The hostelry in question is called the Royal Standard of England in 40 Green, Beaconsfield in Buckinghamshire. The site on which the pub stands actually claims lineage back to uh, the dying days of the Roman Empire and Romano-Celtic Britons and Saxons. And the pub's website actually says that uh, after the Romans uh, left England, uh, England consisted of a mix of Anglo-Saxons and Celtic Britons over the next five centuries, who eventually united when faced with the threat of Viking invaders. In 1009 and 1010, the last Viking raids took place. They arrived by their longboats along the River Thames at Headsall Wharf. Here, there was an old Saxon palisade fort where the old Roman bridge crossed the Thames on the Camlet Way. Our Saxon alehouse survived the raids of the Dark Ages because of its secluded location just out of reach of the Thames. The alehouse kept its independence as a free house and avoided being incorporated into the large Lude estate across the road from the pub, which then belonged to the old Wessex family, the Godwins. Earl Harold Godwin became King Harold II, who fell at the Battle of Hastings. The first Royal Standard of England banner was a gold dragon. The same symbol was used as the war banner of the Royal House of Wessex. The Norman Conquest was a military expedition without settlers, so life for the alehouse did not change from 1066, despite the fact that the Norman rulers thought that the Anglo-Saxon drank too much ale. The alehouse was one of the few places that people could be free of the burden of their new feudal rulers. And inside the pub is a treasure trove of curios, skeletons, paintings, um, strange artefacts, um, deactivated guns and all kinds of uh, interesting knickknacks. And this wouldn't be a very old English pub without a requisite ghost story. And uh, there are several apparently in the pub. Um, one in particular refers to um, an incident in the English Civil War where the Roundheads executed 12 cavaliers outside the pub, including a drummer boy aged 12 who apparently tugs at the arms of diners as they're eating. After the English Civil War, the pub was apparently frequented by various rakes and highwaymen and other shadowy figures. I have to say I didn't experience anything paranormal myself, although I had a very interesting visit nonetheless. Serial killer Peter Sutcliffe, who was known as the Yorkshire Ripper, has died aged 74. Sutcliffe, who died in prison, murdered at least 13 women across the north of England in the late 1970s. He was jailed in 1981 and spent several years at the secure Broadmoor Hospital, where he was treated for paranoid schizophrenia. The killer's sentence was made a whole life term in 2010, before he was transferred to HMP Frankland in County Durham in 2016. Sutcliffe died at University Hospital of North Durham after developing COVID-19, but was said to have refused treatment. The diabetic 74-year-old had ballooned in weight and recently survived a heart attack. Sutcliffe's 13 known victims were Wilma McCann, Emily Jackson, Irene Richardson, Tina Atkinson, Jane MacDonald, Jean Jordan, Yvonne Pearson, Helen Ritka, Vera Millwood, Josephine Whitaker, Barbara Leach, Marguerite Wills and Jacqueline Hill. It is believed Sutcliffe may have killed many more. Peter Sutcliffe and his crimes featured in my book, The Inevitable Jack the Ripper, and I'll post the links below to the book. Thank you for watching or listening, and don't forget to like, share and subscribe. That's all for this podcast. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to give me a rating and subscribe, and uh, sign up to my other channels, such as my YouTube channel. 
Thank you.